In Sufism, sincerity would be understood to be something like doing whatever you do for the sake of God, not for anyone's approval, um, not for attention, not for pleasure. Hi, everyone. Raghu back for another one of our lovely get-togethers. And uh, as I've said quite a few times before, I get to hang out and meet people that I've never met. And it's a delight. And today I have the uh, pleasure to introduce you all to Kabir Helminski. Kabir, welcome. Thank you so much, Raghu. And Kabir is, uh, I mean, many of you out there, of course, are familiar and love Rumi, the Sufi poet. And uh, Kabir has, this has been a, a life, a lifelong work of his, translating and uh, commenting on. And uh, to that end, he has a beautiful new book called The Mysterian, which we're going to talk about today. And But before we get into anything, I notice in the book, Kabir, you referenced an event that happened a long time ago. And I always ask people, what, what were the things that, you know, suddenly created this uh, huge change of just understanding there was a way to be happy? That's always the way I put it, because that was what happened to me when I was a teenager. And I'd love to hear your story. Ooh. Oh, I guess there are a number of milestones on the oh, journey. Good. And let me begin with one that might be interesting to you mm. <laughs> and your uh, and your audience. <clears throat> I was a senior in college uh, at Wesleyan University toward the end of the year when uh, a fellow named Baba Ramdas came back from from India. And the first place he visited when he came back from India was Wesleyan. And I was there to appreciate that, to sit with him for a few days. And that was a major opening, even though I have had been studying world religions and particularly Buddhism. And, uh, but this was a meeting with someone who himself had been transformed to some extent. And this was a very fresh uh, experience in my life and in the life of of others at that time. This is 1968. Mm. And we may not remember how rare such a thing was at that time. Yeah where the number of spiritual teachers, especially Asian spiritual teachers in North America was practically zero. And so some things happened to me energetically 
during that time. And uh, it was, you know, an awakening of Kundalini, shall we say. And uh, that sort of set me on a journey. And my first spiritual initiation was with Ramdas at the Lama Foundation. Oh, really? Wow. In July, mm. on my 21st birthday, <laughs> when I received a mantra and some beads. And that was a very important part of my journey. It would be some years before I came to Sufism. And along the way, there was training and mindfulness, more Zen-like work, physical work and meditation. And, but at a certain point, I met a man named Suleiman Dede, an 80-something-year-old man from Konya, Turkey. I met him in the United States, and soon thereafter, visited him in Konya, Turkey. And this was a coming home for myself and for my wife, Camille. And we found ourselves in an atmosphere of spiritual love that melted our hearts, that brought many tears, the tears not of loss, but the tears of finding. And um, that was yet another chapter in this journey that was a coming home to Rumi's tradition mm. in 1980. And that has been our home and our path ever since. Mm. So everyone out there, just so you know, we really are just meeting, Kabir and I, and... He's telling a story that I, of course, did not know. Now I'm going to tell you, Kabir, that a close friend of mine and someone who is part of, very close to Ramdas over the years and part of the Love Server Member Foundation, his name is, his English name is James Lytton. His Hindu name given by, well, we went back with Ramdas a second time and he got a name, Rameshwar Das. Mm, he yes. was in that hall with you that first lecture. He recounts it because he remembers it went on into the early part of, uh, of the next day. <laughs> it was on hours and hours and Ramdas just went mm -hmm. on. His first, right, his first talk in America after he came back from India. Well, I mean, he did little things, but this was his, his first major talk. And then you being at Lama also... Uh, you know, there's so many connective tissues there, obviously, with Be Here Now was created there. And uh, and when we talk about your commitment to the Sufi path, and it, we, we were very much introduced to it through Ramdas, basically through Sufi Sam, Murshid. Yes, yes. And, and I'm, he was there when you were there, yes. then, correct? We were all there together, yes. So isn't it's an amazing world, that's all. We made salads, we prayed, we danced. Yes. Can you you know what? I'd love to uh, and this is not a digression because he was such an important figure. Um 
What was it like being around him? Can you relate anything about that back at that moment? Uh, we're talking about Ramdas now. No, no, Sufi Sam. Oh, Sufi Sam, and Ramdas for that matter. But, <laughs> okay. but I am personally well, curious because I never did meet him. Yeah. Uh, well, he was a character. Yeah. I, he was like an enlightened kindergarten teacher, <laughs> uh, leading folks around in 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 interesting dances and movements. But I'll tell a story. Maybe it was my first impression of Sufi Sam. I'm sitting on a hillside at Lama, and in front of me is <clears throat> the beginnings of something like a garden. It was mostly sand, and it had a certain geometry, and maybe there were a few living things beginning to grow there. And Murshid Sam walked by uh, without really acknowledging me i was just as if invisible and he looks down at that beginning of a of a circular area a garden and he looks down at it and then he looks up into the sky and then he looks down again and he says it's amazing what people do when they don't even understand what they're doing hmm. So what did he see at that moment? Some reflection of heaven on earth, some uh, archetypal geometry manifesting from heaven to earth, something like that. So that was a little bit of, of Sam. Mm. He, the, he was uh, very entertaining and a trickster, no? As yes. Well. And you know the genuine article in in, in every respect. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And major contributor to Su Sufi movement in this country. Yes, yes, yes. He left behind a legacy, and uh, I think recently a book has been published about that, which uh, I mm. reviewed and commented on. Mm. And uh, yeah, he set something in motion, and it goes on to this day. It's incidentally not my lineage. I had respect and affection for him, but you know, you're, when you're called to a teacher, you know it. Yeah. And yeah. I knew at that time. No, this this is not my teacher, but how wonderful to be here. Mm. Mm. Oh, so you even knew at that moment that that wasn't the path for you through this particular teacher? Well, at that time, my mantra was Om Mane Padme Hum. And it sort of went on in, in a sort of vague sort of way for a number of years until, mm. in a way, a lightning struck. Mm, right. I do know about that. So... Uh, there's the opening thing, Kabir, in your in your book. Um, I beseech you to tell the opening story of the honest man, and there are so many things. There's so many. There's a number of things in it that are really relevant to uh, people becoming, you know, newly getting on the path, seeking, and so on. Um, 
is there a way that you can extemporize it and recall it? Um, yes, I do recall it. It's, it's, I think what you're referring to, Raghu, is that there's an honest man. He's called an honest man. Mm. And he's somewhere in the Middle East. He's at a, uh, a Sufi shrine, which is typically a place where generations of, of Sufi teachers are, are buried. And the cemetery of such places is very important. In fact, they call it the Hamushan, which means the place of the silent ones. Mm. And so he's, he's sitting there and he's, um, He's had a long spiritual journey, and he's experienced various things which were not the ultimately what he was looking for or hoping to meet. And <clears throat> uh, so he meets this mysterious fellow who Sufis would recognize to be Khidr, an immortal guide, Hitter is uh, Elias in in the Greek Orthodox tradition, and he's an immortal that appears when needed mm. to guide people on the journey. And um, so, as when he meets this Hitter, who is never named, nobody. Hitter never says, I am Hitter, mm-hmm. but he's said to usually appear in, in dark green clothing. And um, he's also referred to in, in the Quran as one of God's servants. And as he's sitting there, something begins to unfold in his mind's eye. And... Um, as he says, now in the mind's eye of the honest man, a scenario began to unfold in which he saw some people whose faces seemed dark, whose tone of voice was shrill, and he wondered who these people were. We are those who attached ourselves to self-promoting teachers, who promised us secret knowledge and attracted followers with their cultish mystique. We competed for attention among ourselves and we substituted a shallow idea of self-development in place of true service. Mm. Next, he saw a tall apartment building that seemed to be constructed with the pages of books, pages that had, however, turned into drywall and concrete. The furnishings of each condo were made from letters and words, and the residents were continually busy rearranging the syntax and vocabulary of their habitations. We thought that our intelligence was the supreme virtue, and we conflated book knowledge with spiritual experience. We still keep busy trying to arrange the words into a meaningful conclusion that will free us. Mm. And then the honest man said, but did that bookishness alone condemn you to this situation? And the answer, we were the smartest of the smart. We clung to our sense of superiority and had no patience for those with simpler minds than ours. 
Finally, he was taken to a place where he saw people reclining at ease with smiles frozen upon their faces. They seemed to be talking to themselves as if in a daydream. And he asked these people who they were, as if in a chorus he heard their voices speak within himself. We are those who followed our own inclinations, mistaking our own whims and desires for the will of God, and preferring pleasure and ease to the signs of truth along the way. The honest man says, but at least you don't seem so unhappy. And they answer, because we chose our own immediate satisfactions above all else and called that happiness. Was it not real happiness, he says? And they answer, happiness is no substitute for truth if happiness imprisons you. Just then the visions ended and he found himself sitting in the graveyard again with the green man at his side. Perhaps you're coming to see your journey up to this point with new eyes. This is what realization feels like. You're beginning to see how much of your life has been wasted seeking personal gratification, getting from one path to another, I'm sorry, going from one path to another, avoiding the truth more often than committing to it. And the honest man answers, and yet here in the graveyard of the great saint, I met the one legendary and immortal being who few people ever meet. And Hitter answers, Yes, and only because at a certain point in your life, you were sincere enough to make an honest prayer, a call from deep in the mystery of yourself, and now your call is being answered. The honest man now felt an overwhelming sense of remorse and the desire to seek only the truth but just then, Hitter stood up and, speaking softly, began to walk away. You can't follow me now because I must go back to the ordinary world, the world of half-truths and confused people, the place where I have to do my work. And as the green man walked away, the honest man felt forsaken and bereft. But as he looked around himself in the graveyard of dervishes, everything around him, was the same, and yet not the same. The gravestones tilted by the hands of time, the rose bushes budding and flowering, the clouds sailing across a cobalt blue sky, and he was standing in the land of reality. Mm. I love this. this. This story has so much in it. And we could just discuss this whole thing for an hour. I mean, this part. You no, know, honestly, it's um, there's so much here. Uh, of course, the way in which we have related, uh, as we have just gotten on the path, or you know, you and I have been doing this for for quite a long time, and you know, have a at least a uh, somewhat enlightened perspective that. Um, sometimes it's very difficult when we're young and we're just getting into, as I said, the spiritual path and we think our intelligence is of supreme value. This is the way it, and, and in the West, of course, this, this value is valued above all other values. 
So, you know, yes. we're talking about one thing here that is not easy to let go of or to, and to even understand. So that's really important. Um, and then, you know, of course, the, the, the way in which we prefer pleasure and, and really push away any kind of pain or untoward or anything like that. That's part of, you know, how we deal with life on a day-to-day basis. That is difficult. And, uh, you know, going from one path to another, I, I can't tell you, you know, back in the day that you were talking about when you were at Lama and I soon after was in India with, with Ramdas actually at that time. And we, of course, met a lot of Westerners who had come to India, you know, that big uh, influx into India of people on the, just discovering Eastern philosophy and mysticism. And so I can't tell you how many were flitting from, because there was so much, India offered so many different uh, paths and, and personalities, uh, teachers, et cetera, et cetera. And flitting from one to another, which, you know, hummingbird-like, basically. Mm-hmm. So you, you've uh, enumerated in this story, this story really reveals some of the pitfalls of getting on the path and relating with the different way, who we are as humans, how we've developed in the West. It's all, it's all in here. and. Uh, you know this thing of um, the honest prayer. Talk about that for a minute. I mean that this is uh, mm-hmm. actually a difficult concept. Yeah, yeah. Well, it brings up the question of sincerity. Mm-hmm. What is sincerity, and how does one, <clears throat> you know, how does <laughs> how does sincerity develop? It's the one quality that is the most important quality because we do even the spiritual work and practices we do for all kinds of other reasons mm. than what they're meant for. In, uh, in Sufism, sincerity would be understood to be something like doing whatever you do for the sake of God, not for anyone's approval, um, not for attention, not for pleasure. So then how to go about doing that? How to keep uh, an observant eye upon our own selves on the self which is called the nafs in Sufi language. Nafs loosely translates as ego or the lower self. Mm. And it is so deceptive, it seems to offer what it cannot give and is our own worst enemy. And it's really false coin. Even the world and the worldly don't really buy it because it's such a sham. Everything that we do without sincerity, um, anything we do to manipulate the situation and others, Mm -hmm. 
um, it's it's uh, it's counterfeit. It's counterfeit gold. And <clears throat> you know, Rumi talks about. He has an interesting concept that I haven't heard in quite these words anywhere else, and he, it's called "eyeness without eye." What we're seeking is an eyeness without eye, and there's a lot of confusion around the idea of of loss of self on the spiritual path. Um, let me try to explain how it's understood in the Sufi tradition. Mm-hmm. We will only ever have Inus in one form or other, except perhaps for moments of uh, deep spiritual intoxication when a sense of I completely disappears, but it always comes back. Mm-hmm. If we're going to be in this world, some sense of I-ness is always going to come back. So this is what we have to work with. This is the raw material of the human self. And this one Sufi map details seven levels of this I-ness, seven levels of the nafs, it's called. And just to go through it quickly, uh, it begins at the lowest level, the sense of I is like a prison of compulsions, addictions. Um, And at the next level, which is the awakening of remorse, the awakening of conscience, we begin to see the degree of our addictions, of our inner slavery. Now, in describing these seven levels, it's not exactly a linear progression And we don't need to map ourselves. We don't need to worry, where am I on this map? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we can move. We can can fluctuate from moments in the higher levels and then drop down and be back into triggered by something that enslaves us again. So let's understand that even as I describe the map. So the second level is a level when conscience begins awakening and we begin to see our slavery, even if we can't do much about it, but at least we're beginning to suffer by seeing it rather than being totally blinded by our compulsions and our negativity and our violence and our greed and all of that. The third level is the level where the battle between the positive and the negative, the good and evil, if you like, is basically won by the self that has has basically become a decent human being. This is level three, a good human being. This is salvation in the religious world. Uh, This is good enough for heaven. (laughs) Uh, But what then would be beyond that? The fourth level is the beginning of awakening. You can be a good person, and be essentially asleep. At the level, at level four, what we like to call presence comes into the picture. And there's a new vantage point. In this state of presence, 
from which one can see and observe the nafs, the ego, and have some leverage in relationship to it. And let me give a picture of presence because yes, please, yes. So it's a wonderful word. We could say, a, you know, we recognize a, a good actor has certain presence and a bad actor doesn't, for instance. But we mean something very uh, specific and describable. Presence is a higher state of self-awareness from which, a vantage point from which the thinking mind, the emotions, sense impressions, physical behavior and actions, all of those things, mind, emotions, sense impressions and behavior, all of them can be encompassed in a single field of awareness. This is presence. It doesn't come automatically for many human beings in our world today. It may be a very rare experience because our world has become so technologized, so artificial, so far removed from natural organic life that we have become mechanical. We have become robotic mm. and we are living in a virtual, we are virtual Entities living in a virtual reality. So the awakening of presence is stage four. And this is where most of the conscious spiritual journey happens. It begins at the fourth level. And it, you may hear echoes of mindfulness. Yes, mindfulness may be equivalent to presence in some cases, as long as we don't understand mindfulness as merely a mental awareness in the present moment. It's much more than that, because we need to, need to include the heart. So let's say we had, let's, let's coin a new term, heartfulness. <laughs> so imagine living in a state of heartfulness, which means you perceive existence qualitatively. You begin to feel uh, empathy. You begin to sense beauty. You begin to sense tenderness. You begin to sense a new quality of relationship. This is heartfulness, and it's allied with presence, and it's part of the journey at the fourth level of the self. What is, where, where do we go beyond that? Well, the fifth level in Sufism is the level in which the self experiences intimacy with Allah. In other words, closeness to the divine presence. And we understand this to be we would never say, I become God, or even that I am God. We're careful with those formulations. But the human being is meant, ideally, to know a state of intimacy with the divine and to be transformed by that experience. This is stage five. I could say more about it, but 
let's continue with the journey because stage five is the experience of union or unity with the whole, with the divine presence. And yet one's uh, experience of being a witness, of being a, a lover in relationship to the beloved, or even the beloved experiencing the love of the ultimate lover. This is all stage five. And it's, it's temporary, but it's temporary because we must come back to the world as the man in the story, the honest man in the story did. And, and Hitter says, I have to go back to the world of half-truths. We all come back to this world, a world at war, both literally and in terms of the elements, earth, air, fire, and water, everything is, you know, everything is dying and being reborn. Everything is at war. This is the chaos uh, and the suffering that we come back to, but without losing the awareness and the true remembering of that unity. So we immerse ourselves in this world of chaos and conflict and suffering, etc., but with a quality of certainty that cannot be lost, and that, in a sense, is the remedy for the sufferings, confusion, and apparent conflicts happening in this world. And that is stage six. And stage seven is a sort of a hypothetical, I could say, state of such purity that when one reaches that state seven, one has become a very ordinary person. One should not expect to be uh, invited to sit on a throne of privilege and power, but in fact, one is quite content to disappear in the ordinary world and to be a servant. That is the ultimate state of sincerity, purity of heart. So that's, that's the map in Sufism. We're always working with a quality of I-ness, but at the lowest level, at the level of our addictions and compulsions, the self is like a block of ice. And it knocks up against other blocks of ice. It's not very pleasant. At a certain point, that ice begins to melt with the awakening of conscience, for instance. And it turns liquid. And what happens? What, what, is, what are tears, if not the melting of that block of ice? <clears throat> Beyond that, we, we become a decent human being who can contribute to the world, to our society, to our family, um, and then go on through this journey, awakening into presence and the gradual journey to I-ness without I. Uh, an I-ness that is so subtleized because at each stage, I becomes much subtler mm. to the point where 
your eye is like, it occurred to me uh, when I first met my Murshid, my teacher, Subhamandede, and after spending an afternoon with him, I walked out into the meadows of Virginia and I felt like one of those little sugar cubes like they have in Turkey. You drop in a cup of tea and the sugar dissolves and you are and you're not. You exist, but you exist in that diffuse, subtleized state of presence. And when you meet others, your eyeness interpenetrates them. Your eyeness is not separate from, but you see yourself in the other. So these are a very rough description of the stages of eyeness that <clears throat> the soul can go through. And this book, The Mysterian, uses a term, an unusual English term, mysterian, it's not a common word, but it's a translation of a, a word in the Sufi vocabulary, and that word is sir, S-I-R-R, which means secret, your inmost secret. And that secret is every human being's capacity uh, to, to open to that divine reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll pause here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Uh, uh, that's a w absolutely wonderful um, travelogue, shall I say? <laughs> okay. To different ports that mm -hmm. we do, you know, it accurately represents those ports. When you talk about, for instance, when you talked about conscience, um, it just reminded me, as you may agree, when I first heard Ram Dass and when I first met him, there was a level of self-honesty, which I equate with conscience. Mm -hmm. You start to become aware of your manipulations, your selfishness and self-cherishing as the Buddhists call it. And that's a huge change. Of course, what mostly happens at that time for most of us is uh, judgment and we start to really feel bad about ourselves. And yes. we go through that kind of a period, which off and on goes on through the rest of our life, is working with that energy. And um, I would say that's why, you know, to this day, even though Ram Dass is physically no longer here for the last three years or more, three and a half years, uh, there is such a pull because of a, a magnetism to what he represented. A lot of it is trust. And it's the way in which, as you're saying, there was that immediately home presence of home when you met your teacher. And I had it as well, uh, beginning with Ram Dass, who was a teacher, but en uh, ending soon after that, uh, uh, meeting Neem Karoli Baba. So uh, I think that's a very important uh, aspect because it then, yes, it brings in mindfulness. It brings in a way for us, for us to be able to hold these human qualities and not judge ourselves. And Ram Dass's thing about loving, getting moving into the soul, loving awareness spot in the middle of your being, the, mm. the mysterium basically yeah. is is an important thing i and i'd like to just further this um in because you're talking about presence mm -hmm. and um 
let me just uh, read back to you your own words for a moment because they really speak to something um, that's important. The part of us that, quote-unquote, knows represents a dimension of ourselves informed by the heart and by higher consciousness. It is a state of mind that is spacious and motivated by love. It can gain some perspective on the false self and moderate its demands. It can laugh and let go, which is, to me, one of the highest practices we can do. You know, it's not take ourselves so seriously, when, especially in this stage of conscience, when we're starting to see all the motivations. And so to relieve ourselves of this self-judgment is to laugh and let go. The part of us that, quote-unquote, doesn't know is reactive, controlling, self-righteous, and motivated by fear. The false self will take extreme measures to protect and defend itself. This is all, everybody out there listening, all of us, this is not news at all. (laughs) What is trying to defend, however, is an abstinent yet fragile illusion. So its defenses are ultimately doomed to failure, but not, unfortunately, I'm saying the unfortunately, before wrecking havoc within the psyche and in the world. And we have tons of examples of this right now in our world, uh, who people who have no conscience whatsoever. So uh, I, I, uh, it's interesting. You also mentioned something, a word called heartfulness, which isn't bandied about much these days because uh, it implies everything that you've been speaking to. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, we dis- this is a little bit of a, an ad here, a little commercial could be here, but we decided that what does Ramdas represent so intimately in, in, in so many different ways but we couldn't find the right word to represent his instinct to share everything, right? His, the edict that we all got from Maharaj Karoli Baba was love everyone and tell the truth. That was a big part of what he represented. And after his stroke and when he lived in Maui, he really came into that way in a powerful way, much more so than when before he had that stroke, although he... He could speak to it like nobody else, <laughs> but uh, and uh, service and how important that was, and the idea of how we are connected with each other. So we decided, okay, this is of course the yoga of heartfulness. Mm. So when I'm reading your book, and I got you know, there's a there's a chapter, the foundations of heartfulness. I'm like, holy jeez, mm-hmm. and I didn't even you know, I had really no idea which was the beauty of us getting together here today so uh yeah i think that uh that heartfulness and it engages in so many different ways Uh, maybe you can speak to it even further in terms of the sufi path yes yes um i wrote a book called the knowing heart which Mm. was published in In 2000, in the year 2000, in fact, here it is. I'm holding it up, the knowing heart. And the knowing heart is a translation of a Sufi term in the Turkish language, gunul. And it's very commonly understood 
in Turkish culture that our real intelligence is this knowing heart and the brain is just a uh, an accessory mm-hmm. to the knowing heart. But people so often, especially in the contemporary world, do not know through their heart. In fact, their hearts may be numbed. We may numb our hearts just to bear this world that we're in. And it takes courage to open the heart. It takes uh, a willingness to experience pain and suffering while knowing that in our essence, we are fundamentally invulnerable at our core. And when we know and come to experience that invulnerability in our essence, it allows us to open the uh, and become vulnerable at the outer layers of our being, knowing there's this fundamental invulnerability of, of the soul. So um, the heart is understood for us in Sufism and in Islam, properly understood, as the fundamental, most important cognitive instrument that we have. This is our true knowing. The brain is good for reasoning, for analysis, and for dissecting, for separating, but it's only the heart that can put it all together, hold it all in a single field of of meaning. So, um, actually, here's something from Rumi. If a wealthy person brings a hundred sacks of gold, somebody who's just died, God will only say, bring the heart, you who are bent over double. If the heart is pleased with you, I am pleased. And if the heart is opposed to you, I am opposed. This is God speaking. I don't pay attention to you. I look to the heart, bring it, poor soul, as a gift to my door. Its relation to you is also mine. So this is the basic spiritual advice that God is giving. In the end, bring me your heart. And if the heart is pleased with you, I am pleased with you. That's all you need to know. So we learn to access the heart, to consult with the heart. But it assumes that the heart is purified to some extent. And some hearts are damaged. Some hearts are frozen. Some hearts are stone. Um, Over time, the state of the heart can become like that. It can become diseased as well. So the spiritual work in all of its aspects is for the purification of the heart and awakening of the heart and bringing back the health of the heart. And one way to understand this is that the human heart is caught in the middle between, on the one hand, all the demands of the ego and the, mm. uh, and the, the flesh, shall we say. 
uh, including greed, et cetera, et cetera. And on the other hand, on the other side of the equation is pure spirit, divine love. And the poor heart is suspended between these opposing demands and what shall I listen to? What shall I follow? And if we turn habitually and we receive only the food of the ego, namely the food of, uh, we give all of our attention to the material world and the world of ego satisfactions, which means, yes, not just material pleasures, but egoistic pleasures, uh, self-importance, self-righteousness, etc. Mm. then the heart gradually dries up uh, or it becomes numbed and it's not really functioning as it should. But if we can turn in the other direction, in the direction of pure spirit, in the direction of divine love, of that pure light energy of the divine, then the heart begins to receive the kind of nourishment it needs to function properly, to be our guide. So in, uh, in, its, in Islam, it's said that when the heart becomes purified, then the infinite divine compassion can take its seat on the throne of your heart and guide you directly. So this is the goal, yeah. that that Rahman, it's called, that divine compassion can take its seat on, on the throne of your heart and, and guide, you, guide you directly. So there's a whole science of, of the heart and the purification of the heart. And in every spiritual tradition, it can be understood this way. Uh, and for instance, right now we're in the month of fasting, and every authentic spiritual tradition has fasting as a primary practice. In fact, it's, it's one of the ways to experience the tenderness of the heart. Because food, though it's not an illegal substance, <laughs> is nevertheless numbing to the self. It's a way we can hold down, repress things that might otherwise come up into consciousness. It becomes, you know, a preoccupation of life. What am I going to eat next? Uh, we strip that away, and the first thing that happens is we begin, especially if we've never seriously fasted in our life before, uh, it's quite painful because a lot of stuff begins to come up, and you begin to see your own greed and negativity and, and, and jealousies mm. and dissatisfactions. So all of this is laid bare when you take away the numbing qualities of food and for a period of time expose ourselves to hunger. And that hunger not only teaches us about ourselves and reveals to us uh, what needs to be seen in order to be let go of, but it also helps us to be more compassionate because in our world today, we who rear, who in this country, well, I should no, I can't even say this now, but what? most of us do not go hungry involuntarily. 
more and more people are, in fact. Yeah, more and uh, more people are. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but having fasted voluntarily, our hearts become more tender. We open up to the fact that many people in this world really are going hungry involuntarily. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all about purification of the heart, the heart as our foremost instrument of perception to perceive this existence qualitatively. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But just talking back to fasting and what you just said, you qualified it in terms of people that are going hungry. One thing that we got from uh, Neem Karoli Baba when we first went to India was feeding people. It was the most important thing on his agenda. And he used to say, you can't, not in these words, in, in, in other, I could never, it's funny because when a being like this says something and you repeat it, it sounds like absolute empty uh, stuff because we're not living it. And this being was completely it. So, but he used to say that you cannot teach a person, a man or a woman, until they, while they are hungry, you need to feed them. And that's what was uh, his. I mean, it's like Ramdas wanted esoteric teachings. He he said, "Yeah, I'll give you. Here it is. Feed people, yeah. you know." And Ramdas originally was rejecting this simplistic kind of of thing. Um, I just want I want to close here. Uh, we're at the end of the uh, of the podcast, but you said something again. I'm going back to Ninkaroli Baba, which is our guidepost here in terms of this uh, legacy. Love is a fundamental cosmic energy analogous to electricity that can be tapped and used in many ways. And one of your teachers said, "You're going to learn how to plug yourself into the outlet of cosmic love. I love that. I love that. And guess yeah. what Neem Karoli Baba said to us when we first kids. You know, we were in our early 20s back then. Right. He said, um, love is more powerful than electricity. Bijli in Hindi, mm-hmm. than electricity. Yes. And, uh, you know, there's, you talk about, uh, grace of the universe in the book, just grace in, in general, which is a hard concept for people. Either it's it just connotes back to our Judeo-Christian antecedents of good and evil. If you're good, you'll get some great, you know, all of that, which is, as we learned when we opened ourselves up to mystic teachings within Islam, Within oops, within Judeo-Christian tradition, but basically, we our path was through the Eastern uh, mystic traditions, rather, and uh, and we learned. You now, people say, you know, you guys met a you know an incredible being that became your guidepost, and and you, Kabir, are talking about that same being in another guise. And what about me? I'm not been able to connect with the uh, the reality of uh, the grace of the unseen, as you call it. Yes. And I think the reality is no matter what, we all have that inside ourselves, and we can connect with it. 
we have to use some, in, you know, we have to connect with intuition, which leads us to trust. And we trust, you know, it can be uh, from a, a psychedelic experience to meeting a, a being, to a piece of music, whatever it may be, we have that ineffable experience, which we can then build on, is, is my, my little uh, oh, I mean, closet. Oh, I mean, I mean. <laughs> you know, it's uh, one of the mysteries of existence is that the grace goes unperceived. Mm. It's an unseen rain that is continually falling. And there's nothing but grace. All of this existence is nothing but grace. We learn to see it. And sometimes we learn, well, all, often we learn through suffering. And often, find, often. <laughs> find the blessing within yeah. suffering. Yeah. May we be, there was a prayer of the Prophet Muhammad that he repeated frequently when faced with difficulty, he says, Ya Allah, uh, spare me uh, the harm of this difficulty or suffering or even evil. Spare me the harm of it, but do not deprive me of its blessing. Mm. Mm. So everything is like that. And yeah. isn't it, you know, our experience that somehow, and who can explain it, but over time, we grow to trust that we are living in an infinitely intelligent, generous, and beautiful reality. This is, this is truth. Mm. And here's a, a, a last uh, poem from Rumi's Quatrain, right? Yes. Love is the path and direction of our prophet. We are born from love. Love is our mother. O mother, hidden behind the body's veil, concealed by our own cynical nature. And that is, in my mind, why what you just said, it's a reality. We are concealed from, by, by virtue of our own unfortunate ignorance. Thank you so much, Kabir. So great to meet Thank you. Thank you, Raghu, for inviting me to your podcast. I'm happy to know about it. It's like uh, it goes around, comes around. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, it's amazing. After a long time. Yeah, really, huh? Unbelievable. Everybody, of course... Kabir's books will be, uh, you will be able to connect to them through the show notes on Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. And we're happy to have you all here and happy to have Kabir here, and we shall see you next week. Thank you, Kabir. Thank you, Raghu.